Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, Achtung, which is, of course, German for Achtung, Achtung. Ah, it didn't seem right to not to use the original vernacular. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk Live. Um, this is not an April Fool. This is not a prank. The live stream is with us. Hello, everyone, um, uh, alongside um, uh, the live stream. Hello from Basingstoke. Hello from Harefield. People in South Africa, Australia, all over the world. Achtung from Sussex. Glenn Towler says, nice beard. Well, I have to agree with Glenn Towler there. This is like a podcast unlike any other. Uh, I hope you're all coping with isolation. It could be worse. You could be in a foxhole in Bastogne holding off an entire German panzer division. Or you could be with Johnny Frost. As we can see, James Holland has brought isolation. Essential piece uh, of kit, Al. Essential <laughs> piece of kit in these troubled times. What everyone needs is a World War II gas mask. And apparently it is, um, it is good for COVID-19. Is it? Apparently so. You just, you just like the rubber. Let's be honest now. <laughs> that lovely, mm, oh, so special smell. <laughs> it's not so bad, is it? I mean, you know, with Netflix, Walking the Dog, listening to a podcast or two, isolation is, is tolerable, isn't it? Let, let, let's, let's say that, yeah? It's absolutely fine. 
It's even yeah, better abs- if you're writing a book as well, because that uh, fills the day quite nicely. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, now, of course, James is in Wiltshire, and you're in the middle of uh, uh, Sicily. We're still talking about Sicily, aren't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. Still, still very much immersed. I've just been doing the uh, amazing battle for Azoro, which is where yeah. the Hasty Peas, the Hastings and Prince Edwards um, battalion, managed to clamber up this sort of almost vertical cliff, thousand foot yeah. cliff, in the middle of the night, attack the uh, the Germans from above. And hold on wow. throughout the day. I mean, it's just—it's the most amazing action. It's completely impregnable this place. And, and although it had been um, a Greek, then a Roman, then a Byzantine, then an Arab, then a Norman strongpoint, it had never ever been captured from below ever until really? the Hasty Peas got there. Incredible. So the good old Canadians volunteers Incredible. all. Now, Pete Johnston has popped up on our on our feed, says, as a historian and museum professional, please, please do not put on World War II gas masks as they're full of asbestos. <laughs> That's you, Telt. <laughs> OK, um, well, uh, yes, I'm putting that back in my... It's proper case, then. I'd rather get coronavirus than asbestos in my lungs. <laughs> Here's a question. Um, let's get rolling. Um, here's a question to get us started from David Yields. Um, how prominent in battle were the Scottish Pipers and what did the Germans make of them? Well, the Highlanders, are, you know, traditionally they use the the pipes. I mean, we all, we've all heard them. You either sort of love them or hate them, but there is a sort of yeah. mournfulness about them, isn't there? And and yeah. the best descriptions I had was from this guy who was in um, two rifle brigade and also a Maori, a guy called Mike, Mikey Parkinson, who was in the 28th yeah. Maori Battalion on the opening night, 23rd of October, 1942, um, on the opening night of the Second Battle of Alamein. Uh, and they were, and, and he had the Highlanders on. Um, Mikey had the Highlanders on his right, and he just said it was just the most amazing sound because as they were disappearing over into the, you know, yeah. across uh, the minefields, you could just see faintly in the kind of moonlight and under the flares these sort of figures of, of, of jocks sort of moving forward, the 51st yeah. Highland Division, and this amazing sound coming across. And, and he said, you know, I have no idea what effect it had on the enemy. But he said, said, all I can tell you, it was one of the most profoundly moving things I ever heard in my life, ever. Yeah. Yeah, well, it certainly makes me move if I hear it. I mean, yeah. I, I walk, walk quickly past a piper if I possibly can. I mean, that, that... <laughs> <laughs> I quite like no. them, actually. I'm, I'm quite No, no, I mean I, 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 I mean, I actually think, you know, you've, you've got the, you've got the, you, you have got that thing that it announces... It announces that you're coming. That's, I mean, that's what pipes and drums are all about in battle, isn't it? Is it saying in in the days where they were, you know, actually present on a battlefield? Yeah. It's like we're, here we come, and then the drums will be used to mark actually um, uh, dictate marching speed and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, but but yeah, and then famously, of course, is Bill Millen, um, yes. uh, whose story often told with Lord Lover. Um, who, you know, yes, Glenn, I agree. Nothing wrong with bag, bag, bagpipes. Glenn Towler says nothing wrong with bagpipes. We're just making mischief. Um, the, yeah, Bill Millen is the, probably the most famous story with Lord, Lord Lovett's commandos landing on the morning of D-Day, playing the pipes in, um, in, in his, uh, in his on landing sword craft. Beach. On sword. And so the story he used to tell was, you know, that, that um, you know, they, was, they must have thought I was mad so they didn't kill me. I mean, I, I don't know how he knew that. And after all considerable luck as to what happened to you coming off coming off a um off yeah a that's true on, I mean, there's uh, a very good statue of him there now as well and i mean yeah. the great thing about bill millen is he lived to a ripe old age and he used to regularly yeah. go back and do his pipes and stuff so he became a bit of a sort of party piece didn't he going up there and doing it but um, by all accounts he was a fantastic guy and and i think yeah. the bottom line is if you know the, the the pipes are kind of really important part of those scottish regiments and their and yeah. their, their identity and it's it's kind of what they do 
And, and obviously, it's a big morale thing. We've talked quite a lot about morale over the last few months, haven't we? And that amazing book yeah. by Jonathan Fennell and stuff that we've, we've referenced. Cohesion. Yeah, about cohesion. And, and you know, you hear that stuff. There, I mean, there's a reason why the ancient Celts used to do their battle cry with their carnixes and all the rest of it. And that's because it does have a profound effect on, yeah. on, the, on the side for which it's being played yeah. and against the enemy as well. I mean, you don't just yeah, do yeah, it yeah. for larks. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, I mean, it's great. Andrew, Andrew Twist says, the Australian six divisions were singing, we're off to see the wizard as they assaulted Bardia. <laughs> Very good. Well, there um, you go. And, uh, and uh, Matthew says, apart from on D-Day, what do the army commandos do? Well, you've got the Walkeran thing, you've got the Rhine crossing. Um, army commandos were kept, were kept pretty busy as a sort of... Um, because because the commandos weren't just Royal Marine commandos uh, uh, during during the Second World War. They were um, you know they got reduced after the war just to Royal Marine commanders. Was yeah. Army commandos uh, did all did lots of amphibious stuff as well. Basically, yeah, and the the reason they had had navy and um, they had Royal Marine commandos and they had Army commandos is because it was part of combined operations, which was set up yeah. of course by um, by yeah. uh, uh, Rear Admiral Mountbatten, Lord Louis Mountbatten at the time. And um, these were kind of an extension of SOE. It's all part of this kind of setting Europe ablaze policy that, that Churchill comes up with in the summer of 1940 during the Battle yeah. of Britain. You know, this idea of yeah. kitting back. Um, and I saw that someone mentioned the auxiliary units just a moment ago. You know, yeah, the auxiliary yeah. units were, again, an extension of that, of being prepared, being prepared to kind of get dirty, get stuck in, close quarter combat, you know, hand-to-hand fighting, sticking yeah. sticking commando knives, um, fairbairn knives into, into yeah. kidneys because that's the most... It's so painful if you get stabbed in the kidneys, you just die immediately. Um, uh, and actually, I was just showing you earlier on, Al, um, this rather good uh, epaulette yeah, from... Yeah. Um, this is from a genuine uh, battle dress, airborne battle dress of Norman Field. And Norman yep. was in the Royal Fusiliers, uh, managed to get out, of, um, out of, uh, uh, of Dunkirk, get home, and then he joined up with Peter Fleming and helped set up the auxiliary units. And he was running yep. an area in Kent during 1940 and then later joins the airborne and this is what he's wearing when he uh, drops in on uh, during operation varsity so a little Incredible. bit of ephemera for you that's very good um eddie o'sullivan says irish brigade battalions also initially went into battle in the tunisian campaign to the sound of pipes force captain murphy and his piper were killed in a counter-attack against german forces on grandstand hill in january 43 eventually it was decided not to attack to the sound of irish pipes mm. that's interesting that is interesting because because it does announce your it does announce you're coming, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, somewhat. Um, yes, yeah, but, but right, if you've okay. got a massive barrage flying over your head as well as you're advancing, that yeah. tends to kind of give the game away as well. I mean, interestingly, yeah, you know, they were still a lot of units still wore kilts as well, and they're still using kilts in in um, in Sicily. Uh, as was Ernst Gunter Bader, um, who was <laughs> was a, 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 a regimental commander under Rommel in the desert, and later was in. Um, uh, was in Sicily, and he was given the job of preparing for and protecting the Straits of Messina. And there was nothing yeah. he liked more than uh, wearing a kilt and a, and a, and a claymore. Oh heavens! Yeah. We're talking. Ex- we're, have we already? Have we already gone off topic? And now we're on eccentric Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> right. We have another question. This is from Craig, nineteen forty. Hello, chaps. Love the podcast. With James's new Sicily book coming out and Blair Paddy Main getting looked at with the SRS, mm. do you think he should have got the VC? The paperwork was even signed by Monty and then changed to bar to DSO. A DSO and three bars having met the criteria in different theatres. 
Was he robbed? Was he denied due to not being able to charm the higher-ups like Sterling could, his history of drinking or brawling? Or was the war the SAS was fighting a new sort of war? Um, I, to, to be perfectly honest, I don't think it's any one of those things. I think when you get a Victoria Cross as, and you get that as opposed to a DSO, I think there's a certain amount of kind of sort of, you know, what the person who's signing off is thinking on that particular morning. And yeah. there's a certain amount of luck to it. I mean, all gongs are, to a certain extent, a bit arbitrary because it depends who witnesses them, it depends who puts you in for it and all those sort of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, four DSOs is pretty good, to be honest. I mean, uh, and the bottom line is, is you know, everyone was completely awed by Paddy Main. Everyone, everyone. Mm. I mean, he couldn't possibly have been held in higher esteem if he'd been given a Victoria Cross. And, and it's not the sort of thing he gave two hoots about, to be perfectly honest. But, but let's be... Um, he was... Uh, JMCN has just popped up. Was Maine not a little bonkers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was completely... And now Glenn, Glenn, Glenn has joined in, who we spoke to, mentioned earlier. Yes, Maine was a bit bonkers. He was I a mean, bit bonkers. I mean, he was. But, but he, then lots of people were. I mean, I think you could say Monty was a teeny bit bonkers. I mean, that's but, fine. Well, yes, but, but Maine, let, Maine, Maine let off steam by fighting Dockers. That was his thing. Challenging yeah. everyone in the bar he was into a fight and, and beating well, them all up. it's I mean, very interesting. When he, when he, when he wasn't pissed, he was, he was really softly spoken. Uh, and he, he had a big frame. He was a tall guy, Paddy. And he was one of yeah. these people that when he got into a room, you knew it. You know, he yeah. just had that amazing charisma that a handful of people have that when they walk into a room or walk into a gathering, they just feel it. You just go, whoa, yeah. I'm in the presence of someone who's a really big, special character. Mm. Uh, and he just had that. And, and I remember, you know, you, you read accounts of people meeting him for the first time. They said, you know, this huge hulk of a man came in, you know, this reputation before him. And then he opened his mouth and he was really shy and diffident and, and had a bit of a stutter and, yeah, but and if you, fumbled over you his words. You could afford to be. You could afford to be a bit <laughs> yeah. shy and diffident if you're, if you're well, a great big hulking uh, a, a, a true bastard, can't you? <laughs> that is true. But but the kind of Paddy Main, the kind of big growling Paddy Main who goes around kicking arse and wrecking bars in, in you know, in Cairo mm. and all the rest of it. That character comes to the fore only when he's had an absolute skinful. Um, you know, and it, it seems that he was something of a, a manic depressive, I think. Well, and he yes. was probably an alcoholic. Yeah. But he was a very, very extraordinary man. I mean, you know, all the praise you hear of him is entirely deserved. I mean, he's one of those uh, kind of super, super men. But he's also one of, he's arguably one of those people, if the war hadn't come along, what would he have done with the, with his youth? You know, with that with that period of his life, he'd have played rugby. He'd have been a, he'd have been a barrister, and uh, and it's sort of there are people who wore absolutely just suits. Yeah. There's, there's there's no there's there's no no better way of putting it. I think, yeah. and and he is someone. Uh, and Peter Fleming is another really good e example. And George Jellicoe, you know, George Jellicoe, yeah, he was also in the SS and then commands the SBS. I mean, I remember exactly. interviewing him, uh, and he was just amazing. I mean, for him. Being in the SAS, being in the SBS, it was like being in the Boy Scouts with guns. I mean, he yeah. just loved every second of it. He loved being in danger. He loved shooting people. He loved yeah. kind of sort of, you know, stalking onto Leros in the middle of the night and all that kind of stuff and riding into bi yeah. Athens on a bicycle. He just couldn't get enough of it. I mean, he was the most yeah. amazing guy. And of course, son of the, of the famous Admiral. Yeah, he, he was the guy who told me that, that the reason he didn't join the Navy, Navy was because as, even as a 17-year-old, he had the rather yeah. unfortunate habit of wetting his bed and he didn't want to piss on the person below if he was in a hammock. Well, I, yeah, I also expect 
it's just plain fucking embarrassing. But there we go. Yeah, Sorry, but, I've dropped. But, I've dropped the. But F, this is. F, but this is why F-bomb. he joined the army rather than the uh, rather than the navy. It's just so now, brilliant. Tony Tony Stone says, "Doesn't beating up Dockers affect the operational factor?" And I think well, what t- possibly I think what yeah. Tony's. I think what Tony's trying to do is get you to say operational factor. Okay. <laughs> well, the operational factor, of course, is absolutely key <laughs> for the whole thing. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Now, now we have a question from Rob44. In Commando Men, about a Royal Marine in Northwest Europe, the writer mentions German troops using a mobile brothel in Normandy close to the front lines. Was this a common practice? Yes, it absolutely yeah. was. And it was really, really well. Um, so the, the, what the Germans did was they, they had these, you know, they had the, sort of the hated fell gendarmerie who have these rather yeah. elaborate chains and, and sort of dog, uh, dog tabs that they put around their yeah. necks. They're absolutely loathed by everyone and they're incredibly strict. And basically, if you want to go to a brothel, what you have to do is you have to go and get checked out by the doctor first. You get handed a French letter. Um, you get told, you know, what you can do and what you can't do. You hand over your, your, your cash, your fennigs. Um, yep. You get given a docket and off you go and do your business. And then when you come back, you have to be checked again. And if you don't yep. do that, then, you know, you literally can be shot. But that's actually not really particularly different to what the British Army did. But uh, I mean, apart from the being shot bit at the end, the British Army really did make sure that its men's sexual health was um, uh, uh, was looked after. And of course, there's the I mean, I'm, I'm sure we've talked about this before the podcast in, in 1940 uh, or late 39. I think when Montgomery gets into trouble with with sort of polite society because he he writes a, a memo about horizontal refreshment and says <laughs> that if the men the men need to do this they're going to do this so what we need to do is keep tabs on it and we need to we need to um there need to be approved brothels and all this sort of stuff and he got into all sorts of trouble and nearly I mean nearly you know another one of those occasions where he nearly lost his job for telling the truth and that uh, um it's really it, it it you know Stan Lee I don't know if people know that people probably know this Stan Lee. He who invented the Incredible Hulk, Fantastic Four, yep. Spider-Man. In the war, he worked for um, uh, American, uh, you know, because he wanted to be a writer. He ended up in the army as a GI writing uh, a VD propaganda. No way. And, I yeah, never yeah, knew that. that. Yeah, yeah. That's what, that was one of his first professional writing jobs was he wrote about, he wrote all those sort of, you know, um, all those kind of... Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't don't get VD, whatever you do. And, 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 and that didn't just, that wasn't, that was also... I mean, be careful of the easy ladies of easy virtue, you know, like watch yourself and all that. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's very much of its time. Yeah. But but he was involved in that incredibly. And yeah. was, was part of the army education drive to try and make sure that so because, you know, a man, a sick man, uh, a man off with with um, is no uh, use to any man. Yeah. And he's certainly not exactly. used to a fighting, a fighting exactly. army. He's that's lost to sure. the enemy and yeah, all that. Yeah, the, yeah. The syphilis was another enemy. You know, the, the, the obvious, this obviously was a thing the army really, really had to keep um, tabs on. So because because I remember talking, you know, you read accounts of Normandy, queues at brothels, especially after the Great Swan where they're broken out. Yeah, queues yeah. of queues at brothels at Antwerp. Great. lot Because because, by, oh, of course, by the time by the time you get to um by the time Antwerp's been captured and the sort of front stabilises aftermarket garden, basically, you do get, you know, Antwerp turns into this enormous furlough place where people, you know, get their time off yeah. and come back. And, and there's, you know, there's a sort of there's a sort of civilised rear area that hasn't been smashed up like Normandy. And you get you get people, you know, great long queues at brothels and it yep. becomes part of the sort of becomes part of what you do on your on your on your time yeah. out. Yeah, I remember my great friend Bill, who was uh, who lived in um, uh, Charleston and was uh, in the U.S. Marine yeah. Corps, and he'd been yeah. on Okinawa. And him and his mates, after Okinawa, they were put on, um, they were sent to Shanghai and um, for some downtime. 
Yeah. And um, basically, they just sort of, you know, hoard their way through the city. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, and sort of, you know, got all that pent up aggression, emotion, all the rest of it out of them. I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's, it sounds so barbaric and awful. But if yeah. you've just been through the bloodiest battle of all in the Second World War, yeah, I guess that's what you need to do. And interestingly, he then eventually got back home um, and bought a Harley and went off on a one month driving trip all around America, came back home, told his parents absolutely anything. And he said, you know, I didn't spare them any details at all. And he said, and I've never had any nightmares. And of course, that's very interesting. You know, he's a unique, he's a unique case, but he he was very much an advocate of it's much better to it's good to talk. So um, um, Pete, Peter Johnston again. And Shaq, VD was a, <laughs> uh, Peter Johnston says uh, VD was a huge problem for the British in post-war Germany, or, and despite the non-fraternisation rule. Well, we all know how well the non-fraternisation rule panned out. Yeah. And then Mick says VD was a still a problem for the British Army in Germany in 1984. Smiley face. So, <laughs> Is that a smiley face? It is a smiley face. You'd have thought you'd be having one of those faces with tears coming out the side, wouldn't you? And then, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then Philip Trousdall says, when I was an officer cadet at Sandhurst, we were told that only generals and chaplains could catch VD from loose seats. That's very, very, very good. Okay. <laughs> now, um, so uh, questions. Some questions that are coming in as we go. Um, uh, insert generic well done. This is from Adam. Uh, Alan James, we often say necessity is the mother of invention. Um, with that in mind, which nation during the Second World War proved to be the most innovative in solving the challenges they came across? Well, <laughs> it's probably not going to be any great surprise <laughs> when I say it was definitely the Allies. I, I, I think it's not just about innovation. I think the point about innovation is it's not just coming up with innovation for innovation's sake. It's coming yeah. up with the right innovation. And I think the two things go hand in hand. And I think... You know, obviously, the Germans being the first people to send a man-made object into outer space, yeah. is, you know, that's quite innovative think, yeah. by anyone's reckoning. You know, no one can doubt that. You know, cre- creating the ME-163 comet, cre- you know, getting, getting the ME-262 in the air for the first, you know, as an operational yeah. aircraft for the first time, creating the Type 21 U-boat. Um, which yeah. is the benchmark for all future post-war submarines and is the world's yeah. first proper submarine as opposed to a yeah. submersible, which is what most Allied submarines are in the Second World War. You know, all of that is a pretty, pretty amazing. But how useful was it and, and did they do it at the right time? And the answer would have to be no. Whereas what yeah. you see from the British and the Americans particularly is their, their, their focus is just so good. And I think that's yeah. the difference. And I would single out um, as one thing, I, the cavity magnetron, I think, is one of the greatest inventions that yeah. emerged out of the Second World War, which I think is invented in November 1940. And it is what enables you to reduce the size of your radar aerial. So instead of having a 270-foot high lattice work aerial uh, on the coast at yeah. Dover or Ventnor or wherever it might be, um, actually it's so small you can put it on a destroyer or a Corvette or inside a Wellington or a, or yeah. a, a very long-range um, B-24 Liberator. And that is quite a big game-changer because it means you don't have to have all those sort of TV aerials that the Germans have later on in the war um, on the front causing drag and all the rest of it. Um, and also the other thing is, is that the Germans never know that we've invented it, ever during the Second World War. So it's a huge, huge advantage, but there's so many different things. I mean, well, I, you know, what is one. discovered is incredible. Something. Mundane, right? Yeah, there's people suggesting synthetic fuel, ejector seats, so on. Plastic armour, yeah. right? Invented by a solicitor, a guy called Edward Terrell, who was a, like a, a bloke, who a gentleman inventor. What he realised is if you put, 
if you put bitumen, basically he invents this thing that that can be that can be um, applied to ships that reduces the shock of uh, bullets and stuff. And he he sees that ships have been patched. He sees this paddle steamer that's been patched with a combination of bitumen with cork in it. Right. Right. It's a highly flexible um, uh, material. And, and so he, he, he goes to the government and he, pit, he pitches this idea and, they're, and, they're, and it doesn't work. And someone says, well, hang on a minute. If we fill this with bitumen, if we fill this with, with stone, basically, yep. we'll in, we can invent a flexible, applicable um, surface to ships that, um, that works as armour rather than steel. Because the economy has, has had to shift its emphasis, mm. um, they're not building roads. Right. So there's loads of asphalt. There's loads of bitumen. Right. And so you're, you're able to then create this plastic um, uh, armour stuff yep. that goes on ships that, um, that's, that this innovative... And, and, and it's not glamorous. I mean, I think, I think this is... What's interesting is a lot of these innovations aren't glamorous. They aren't DD tanks. They aren't the Mulberry and, and so on. It's a really, really, really interesting idea and there's there's all that going on at the same yeah, time and the, and the british are very receptive the british are very very receptive to this stuff and i, I and i and i absolutely know that you know the, the the headline things are the tanks and i mean you know andrew twist pops up with penicillin yeah, absolutely. yeah 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 absolutely well and pycrete not so good, so much but you know it's a good idea at the time but um yeah but but penicillin absolutely you know alexander fleming that i mean again the germans never have that you know the soviet union yeah. never has that japanese yeah. never have that it's, it's yeah. such a game changer you know and by 1944 on the battlefield you know one in four casualties are getting to hospital yeah. are getting returned to the battlefront and that is you know really it's it is all about welfare and morale but it's also about pragmatism as well and i think that generally yeah. speaking the 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 Western allies particularly are just so much more efficient at fighting wars, which is one of the reasons why at the end of the war, the number of dead of Americans, Canadians and British and so on yeah. is considerably less than all the other major combatants, even though they've been, import, uh, they've been involved in the war in sort of every corner of the globe. That's yeah. not because we haven't been trying. It's because we fought a much more efficient war. That's it for now. We've got to take a break. We'll be back shortly. I'm Mike. I'm known as Boats. I'm afraid to say I've been away twice. Rob, 33, from southwest London. I, and unlike <laughs> Boats, I learned my lesson. I've only done one stint inside. I am Claire. I've not been inside. Well, I've spent many days inside, but no nights inside custody. I've been a prison lawyer for over 10 years now. You don't get told anything, so you get put in a cell, and you don't know when you're next coming out, you don't know what's happening. I didn't have a clue what was going on. What's it come to? I'm sat in a prison cell with up the walls, counting out own brand hobnobs. It's not a holiday camp. Well, that became pretty apparent quite quickly, <laughs> yeah. Describe the effects of what Spice is doing to people. Somewhere between asleep and fitting and having a heart mm. attack. So you yeah, have it's, it's actually quite scary to see it. When the World Cup football on, it was like being down the local pub. I mean, we used to joke about it. There yeah. was one of the, one cell we used to call the Stagger Inn. I've heard of people fitting up iPhone 5s up their ass. iPhone 5s are quite wide and long. <laughs> Banged Up, a new podcast from Goalhanger Films on life in a British prison. Get Banged Up wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Okay, um, uh, from Pete. Um, loves the podcast. Thanks, Pete. Um, <laughs> 
Um, your knowledge and enthusiasm for your subjects is a real tonic in these troubled times. I, I should oh. say so. It's given me stuff to read about. Uh, <laughs> my question is, did the Germans have any successes in cracking the Allied codes in the way that Bletchley Park did? I've read that the French encryption was pretty easy to break, but I haven't heard about Axis powers breaking into British or American ciphers. Yeah, they did, and notoriously so in the um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in North Africa. Um, yeah, yeah, they did. They had lots of codes, and the Japanese broke lots of American codes as well, and, and British codes. Um, so yeah. yeah, it was happening all the time. But 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 uh, we were more canny with our with our coding. We had uh, more foolproof um, encryption um, devices, um, and uh, yeah, they didn't. Uh, you know, but nothing the, nothing like on the same level that we were cracking. I mean, cracking I mean, in the desert, codes. one of the big pro- one of the, in the desert, one of the big problems was, is, was that the um, uh, that the American military attaché was was uh, he he'd been he'd been uh, cracked, hadn't he? Yes, and was exactly. basically reporting back to Washington, going, "Oh, they're going to do this next. They get, you yeah. know, there's this big push coming, and blah blah blah." And the and the Germans knew all, basically knew all about. Yeah, things and like if Crusader. I remember rightly, they were overrun at, at Alam Halfa, weren't they, at the very end of August? Which is yeah. one of the reasons why um, the Germans are so in the, you know, the, the Germans and the Italians are so in the dark about Alamein. But obviously, yeah. you know, they knew what was going on. I mean, it's all that other stuff, yeah. isn't there? All those deception things about sort of you know, masculine the magician who did all that kind of sort of smoke and mirrors yeah. stuff. <laughs> You know, I'm. You know, I'm not. I'm just not that convinced by all by all that stuff. I've got to say. <laughs> you know, okay. I, I, think, I think the Germans knew they were coming, and, and sort of pretty much what they were going to do. Yeah. Anime, no. yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Um. Uh. From Andy H. My nan used to swear blind that she was pushing her mum in her pram in 1939 in Liverpool. A lone German plane flew overhead and the pilot waved to her. Could that have happened? She also claimed to have invented hockey. So I've always taken that claim with a pinch of salt. <laughs> Don't think so. Not in 1939. So. Uh, 1940, yes. Um, but, you know, who, I mean, it wouldn't have been a fighter plane because they wouldn't have been able to reach there. So it had to have been a bomber. Lone bomber coming over. Could have been a reconnaissance plane. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Okay. So I've got, you All know, right. so there's a guy in my village who absolutely swears blind. Swears blind that um, the Graf Zeppelin flew down um, the Chalk Valley in 1939 really yeah the summer of 1939 now what did happen was um, well they, they sent zeppelins out to test the radar didn't they They did and then they flew back again now is it possible that they could have flown back inland and flown back out over southampton well is it possible they got lost yes uh, yes and yes, yes. <laughs> so, so it is all possible it's just and, and, you know, he says, I can remember it. He said, I looked up and I heard this amazing kind of sort of faint whirring and I could see it and, and it was coming all the way from Salisbury. And I looked at and watched it as it flew directly over the village. I mean, it was so vivid, his memory. You can't possibly kind of see how he could have been mistaken in that. But, you know, memory's a weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, or it was the R1, it was, you know, one of the R, R100 No, because that was, that was, the, I mean, the R100 blew up in... R one hundred one blew up in yeah yeah yeah. So what R one hundred one that blew up? Oh uh, yes 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 yeah, it was yeah yeah. Because yeah. because I I I grew up around Bedford where there's these enormous Cardington um, hangars that were built for the R one hundred one. Oh yeah, they're enormous, like, aren't they? Yeah, designed yeah, just, by um, Barnes Wallace. So gigantic. Designed yeah, by Barnes Wallace. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now. Um, uh, where they and they made the Batman films in there. Anyway, we've gone. We've, we're really off subject now. We're going to talk about Batman films. Um, uh, um, yes. Now um, we have another question, and uh, we're going to get stuck into this. I expect um, this is from Russell Ch- Russell Chapman. What's the single most important order? 
Yes, it did crash in France. I know. Yes, was the um, Glenn um, from was the single most important order in the Second World War? The infamous halt order of twenty fourth May oh, nineteen forty. God, that does if so, <laughs> can you once and for all assign responsibility for it to Hitler or von Rundstedt or even Goering? Cheers, lads. Loving the pod, especially the brilliant book recommendations. Uh, yes, I think I can assign it to Hitler. Okay, so there's all sorts of. Ghastly theories about this. So, so basically, what happens is, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm gonna might get my dates muddled up, but so give me a, a day or two's yeah. grace. But yeah. I think what happens is it's on the 23rd of May 1940, and the Panzers, Panzer Group A, uh, Army Group A, the Panzers, Panzer Group Kleist, which is under Guderian, yeah. have yeah. surged forward. Rommel is surging forward as well, and they have this opportunity to completely encircle the BEF and the French that are in the northern pocket. Yeah. And what happens, but, but, but von Kleist is very nervous that his panzers have got ahead of his infantry. And so he orders a halt to the panzers. So it's just half far and let everyone else catch up. And Guderian and everyone comes back and goes, are you mad? This is insane because we have got this opportunity to completely encircle the whole northern pocket of the French and British. Uh, and we need to push on. He goes, no, 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 no. And Guderian, um, and von um, Rundstedt, rather, who is the commander of Army Group A, confirms von Kleist's order. Yeah. When this is relayed up to army headquarters, up to uh, up to v- Franz Halder, who is the chief of staff of the army, uh, and von Braukic, who is the commander of the army, he realises this is absolutely insane and so makes a decision to hand the um, panzers, panzer group Kleist, over to the authority of army group B, which is attacking from the north. Yes. And says, right, instead of... The Panzers now being the uh, being the Hamel and uh, Panzer, uh, and Army Group B being the Anvil, we will turn mm. it around. So Army Group A can be the can be the Anvil and and pa- uh, Army Group B can be the Hammer, yeah. and yeah. we can continue and complete this encirclement. The following day, the twenty fourth of May, Hitler visits uh, uh, von Rundstedt and says. What's going on? How are the Panzers? And von Rundstedt goes, well, my Fuhrer, I don't know, because the, um, the Panzers have been handed over to Army Group B. And the Fuhrer goes absolutely apeshit and goes, what? You know, how dare they do this? You know, how can they, that, something of that magnitude be agreed without consulting me first? Blah, 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 blah. Lots yeah. of spittle, lots of bad breath, etc., etc. And he goes straight back to, to von Braukitsch, straight back to Holder, says, says, don't you dare do something like that again hands the panzer straight back to Army Group A, and von Rundstedt upholds the halt order. And, yep. and Hitler says, it's now von Rundstedt's decision as to when he undoes that halt order and says yeah, that yeah. they can move again. So everything's back to as it was. And in that interregnum, because they don't get the order to release until I think it is the 27th of May, and they're not on the move again until the morning of the 28th, Operation Dynamo has started, the evacuation of the BEF, yeah. and they've been able to get it out. Ever since they get the BEF out, and, and the encirclement never happens, which is why yeah. we have Dunkirk and the, all the rest of it. Yeah, so yeah. It, is, it is a really major cock-up from the point of the, of the, uh, from the Germans. And, you know, it's dangerous doing what-ifs, but you can't see really how they could have failed to do that complete encirclement had... Yeah. Halder had his way and had Guderian had their way. Yeah. In, in the meantime, um, Goering, who is hav- hovering over Hitler's shoulders, goes, goes, oh, don't worry about it, mein Führer. My, my, my Luftwaffe can deal with these guys anyway, yeah. these hopeless RAF and, and the, the yeah. pathetic BEF. Uh, and Hitler goes, great, well, time to crack on then. 
Um, and of course, they don't because they're not able to. But but there is this theory that that you know Hitler was doing it because he sort of wanted Britain to get away and all this sort of nonsense. It's nothing to do with that at all. It is yeah. purely one hundred percent about Hitler showing who is the daddy man and yeah. showing um, the army command that they can't basically kind of muck around with him uh, and yeah. everything has to go through him. He is the, but, the absolute but, supreme. But mode. so much of this is born of the fact that they, no one expected any of it to work. No. They were in a situation they right. never actually imagined would come off. No. The, the, in fact, they did, far exceeded their expectations with Valgelb. The, 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 the whole thing, and you know, the, the, basically the Allies had delivered the victory to the to the to the Germans by doing everything that was everything that was asked of them really if we yeah. and and so so then what happens is is they have to start making decisions having because they've made all their decisions haven't they so they're suddenly having to start making decisions and then you get into actually who's in charge who's boss and of course if you've got Hitler in the mix he's boss isn't he yeah and, and and he wants also he wants to he wants to claim this victory for himself rather than say the generals are responsible. Yes. So he's trying he's he's trying to lay down the law and say this is um this is this is who's in charge here. But but, but, out, well, yeah, also, but but also you're two weeks into the campaign. Everyone's exhausted. The gears falling. The tanks are beginning to fall apart. Um, ammunition is an enormous issue um, uh, in the you know because the, because at the start of the First World War the Germans nearly ran out of ammunition so uh, and there was an ammunition scandal during the First World War and it was an issue that that everyone remembered and hung heavy in people's minds mm. in terms of in terms of procurement and so you've got that whole thing of a big part of the steel effort mm. that's supposed to go to U-boats supposed to go to tanks supposed to go to the Ju-88 that actually is being the steel's being spent on ammunition yeah. And they're worried that, that you know they're worried that stock, stocks are going to run out, and you've got you've got all this this because it's supposed to be a short war. The plan the plan is for a short knockout blow. Then it works. They're they're caught in the you know the army itself is sort of caught out by its own success. And then the polit and then of course the politicians get involved and go well actually I'm in charge here, not Halder, not not uh, von Rundstedt, not anyone else. And Hitler steps in and 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 makes the decision for everybody. And and of course. He made he he, he was he, he was quite capable of making terrible decisions. Hitler, I think we. You know, well, I think well this is the point. This is what one has to understand. It is you know, I remember I remember writing this book once, uh, uh, and uh, someone reviewed it and says, you know, how dare Holland say that you know Hitler was a was a military nincompoop because you know did he not realise that you know Hitler voraciously studied military history and read his history and all the rest of it? And I thought, well, what a stupid thing to say. I mean, you know, I've studied history, but obviously, you know, I'd be absolutely crap as a field marshal or commander of an army I wouldn't have a clue uh, and you know so the things don't go go together at all and the point about Hitler is you know he really was just a half jack in the first world war he never yeah. went to staff college yeah he read a few books and stuff but also by 1940 you know he, he's he starts to become convinced of his own brilliance and genius because he's surrounded mm. by sycophants who sort of go yes mein Führer you're the best mein Führer you know can I you know do unspeakable yeah. things to you my Führer uh, and and, and you know, he started to believe it. But but the truth is, he is totally ill-equipped and untrained in every regard to be making these sort of decisions. And yeah. the fact that he's making a decision of that magnitude, purely out of spite and to show who is the daddy man, uh, um, to sort of get one over the army high command, just goes to show what a kind of woeful and inadequate person he is as an army commander. Which book would you recommend on this? It's the Freisler, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yes. Ha Karl Heinz Freiser. Uh, Freezer, yeah. I think it is, because it's 
I-E-S-E-R. Yeah. Karl-Heinz Frieser, and he's an ex-German uh, um, army colonel um, and very pronounced uh, um, historian. And he wrote a book called Blitzkrieg Legend. And he goes into this in very, very great detail. And it's impossible to disagree with anything he says, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I mean, he's absolutely yeah. nailed it once and for all. Uh, and, you know, all those other conspiracy theory nonsense ideas are, just need to be kicked into touch. Yeah. OK, um, uh, just uh, just on our sidebar, Hydor says, an old boy I know was part of Operation Varsity, which is which uh, 75 years ago just kind of happened. Um, and remember standing on the banks of the Rhine and hearing the hell of a racket as an ME262 flew over the course of the along the course of the river. It was belching black smoke, presumably because of the poor fuel it was burning. He said it sounded like a badly tuned bus. Well, it might have been hit by a hawk of Tempest. I mean, you know. <laughs> Talking of Tempest, I just want to mention um, the uh, Hawker Typhoon Preservation Group because it is oh, the yeah. 75th anniversary today of the shooting down of RB396, which is this uh, um, typhoon which is being restored currently uh, somewhere in yep. Sussex, uh, down at Goodwood. And uh, they're an amazing bunch of people that are putting this together. And yep. on the 1st of April, 1945, um, uh, Flight Lieutenant Chris House was flying this particular typhoon uh, and attacking a kind of German column on the ground. Um, and got hit by some light flak and had to crash land. And he was safe, yeah. he was fine, and he survived the war and all the rest of it. But the uh, but the typhoon had to be abandoned. Um, it later got picked up and got put in a, in a museum in Holland, and it was then bought in 2012. And ever since then, they've been restoring it bit by bit, painstaking um, effort. Yeah. But as you know, Al, I'm a massive fan of the typhoon and the tempest. And I would mm. just so love to see a typhoon flying again. I really, really would. It would just be the most amazing thing. And they've got a, um, a Napier Sabre engine in absolutely perfect condition. It's good to go. They've run it up, all the rest of it. It's all absolutely fine. Um, and it will happen, but they, they need lots of support. So if anyone wants to get involved with that, if you look up just the Hawker Typhoon Preservation Group, you'll find it on Facebook. You'll find the web page and all the rest of it. But 75 yep. years ago today. So um, As Sterrett and someone else earlier pointed out, it's the RAF's birthday today course yes it is yeah from formed on april fool's day yeah um, 102 uh, 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 let's not get into the fact it was uh, formed on april fool's day right okay um uh, now dauntless says now this is here we go <clears throat> um uh, as we know allied tankers say they feared the tiger tank but what allied tank did the axis fear most sherman firefly question mark bog standard sherman due to weighted numbers as for british tanks what were the winners and losers thanks in advance oh my god how long have we got Actually, Al, this is a perfect opportunity to show some of your models. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, Hold so the Al line, has got up. the most amazing collection of tank models. I, I hadn't realised what a closet modeller he was, but I've got to say, he's pretty darn good at them. Check out this bad boy. M10 Achilles. Look at that. Whoa. I'll just move Monty out of the way. There we go. Look at that. I mean, look at the detail on that. There we are. You're a proper tank model and nerd. It's 17 pounds. Re you really have inspired me. I've, I, I, honestly, when I've got this, this bloody book done, um, <laughs> that is what I'm going to do. My self isolation <laughs> holiday treat is going to be creating a. Um, definitely, it's got to be Sherman, hasn't it? But I've got to say, yeah. in terms of the one they most feared, I reckon, I mean, from all the, all the kind of literature I've read on, on um, you know, and listened to um, German accounts and all the rest of it, boy, they did not like the crocodile. Yeah. And who can blame them? Something that can yeah. fire a jet of uh, 120 yards of napalm. I mean, well, no well, thank and, you. And, uh, oh, yes, Gareth says it's not a tank. 
Um, yes, it's I know. not it's a, a tank, tank destroyer. I know. Okay, it's a tank destroyer. Okay. All right, but, but what else know, is in it? It's a tank that can spew flame. Okay, so I'm calling it a tank for the purposes of this discussion. Sorry, James. I could. What have we got now? There we go. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. It's an archer, which is a Valentine chassis with a 17-pounder, and it, it and the gun points backwards. So you fire the thing, and then you and then you you depart the scene of the crime. Well, I that's think it's pretty good, yeah. clever. So yeah. I've got to. Um, I've just been writing about Hummels, German ah. assault guns, 155 millimeter assault yeah. gun howitzers. Yeah. Well, he talks about. He says it's a heavy a heavy assault gun howitzer, is yep. what he calls it. He says, I, yeah. I, I mean, a, in, a, in, in the 3rd Battalion of the Hermann Goering Panzer Regiment, yeah. um, and I am in the heavy assault gun platoon, I think he calls it. Well, mm. it's an abtiling, isn't it? But it's not a battalion. He's just in that particular bit. But anyway, but I, I can't see that in July 1943, it could have been anything other than a Hummel. Mm. A bumblebee. Yeah. Soft name yeah. for a... But he's certainly right. he's certainly on a hill firing out to sea, so it's got to be something that can lob a shell a fair old distance. I don't think 105 would be able to chuck it that far, would it? Terry says, why did it take us so long to put sloping armour on our British tanks? Because um, uh, we didn't think we it was the right solution to the problem. Um, you you have you have you know you you you've these two philosophies. You've the infantry tank, so um, uh, uh, like so, which is you know which is the Churchill. And uh, super thick armor, slow, brick built like a brick outhouse can go can go up very steep hills. Um, an infantry support tank, an integrated infantry weapon, and then you've the the, the cruiser tank philosophy. Which uh, and of course, what happens at the end of the war is you end up they give up on that altogether, and you get you get basically the precursor to the main the main battle tank. Um, but the yeah, I, I think I think the whole sloping armour is a little bit of a kind of sort of is a tiny bit misleading to be perfectly honest because you know you only have sloping armour really on the front and and so much of a tank's time they're not on the they're not kind of facing straightly no. down the barrel of the person that's trying to shoot them uh, no. uh, you know that's how they get destroyed you know so uh, there are inherent problems with sloping armour of the kind of design of the hull I mean obviously it yeah. works for Sherman and it works for works for Panther and and, and, yeah. and so on. Um, but but it's not, it's not but it's not the kind of it's it's not that is the solution to to your yeah. your armor issue. Yeah, there are yeah. other, other well, ways of doing it. Well, also most armored. I mean, here's the thing: most armored encounters in Normandy were um, were uh, very close. Um, you'd you'd get you'd go round a corner. There'd be a self-propelled gun there. He'd, he'd fire one off at you and then vanish. To a, to, a, to a pre-arranged second firing position, blah, 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 blah. The, the, big, the, big open, the big open encounters like, say, Goodwood are, are, are not the norm. The reason Goodwood is such a magnet it, for, for controversy, I think, a discussion is because it's not what's going on in Normandy in it's general. It's not normal. It's not normal. I mean, the, the Goodwood is not normal to have those two armoured divisions sort of operating side by side. That is not yeah. how they do things. And they're doing it to try and save, save infantry because yeah. they're running well, short of infantry, but actually it doesn't, yeah. doesn't complete opposite effect because actually yeah. you've still got lots of infantry involved in the battle and lots of them get, become casualties. David, so Yield really says, but, David Yields says sloping armour compromises internal crew space. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's my point. There's, you know, there's, 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 always, there's always kind of arguments for both, both sides. Yeah. Right. Well, I think, you know what? I think we've, that's about all we've got time for. Um, Golly, you know that's what? Gone, gone really, really quickly. It's flown by and, and I've, I've, I've enjoyed enormously yeah, watching everyone 
chipping in along the side. Yeah. It's been absolutely fantastic to hear from you all. And I'm sorry we haven't Avery. answered more of those questions because they're Yeah, that's right. The coming. flying dustbin, Glenn. Absolutely. The fine, flying dustbin. A spigot mortar. <laughs> a relation, <laughs> yeah. of course. A relation of the Piat. Uh, and there we are. And there's one of those Churchill tanks with the uh, with the huge dustbin mortar um, just outside uh, from Juno Beach. Yeah, is it Juno? Yeah. No, and it's been painted a horrible colour. It's painted, painted got, a completely wrong green. And I think they've got one in the in the restoration shed at um, Bovington as well. And uh, yeah, they got yeah uh, they, they yeah. have. They absolutely yeah. have that amazing shed. Wow. If you haven't anyway, been there, once everything opens up again, anyway, get your ass down. That's, that's all we've got time for. Um, remember, you can hear a chapter of the day of the brilliantly vivid novel, The Cauldron, written by Zeno, based on his actual experiences at the Battle of Arnhem. Um, this is the book we've been reading from. Here's the cover. Um, although it has several covers. Um, uh, yep. I've been, trying to, I've been trying to show up other covers on uh, on Twitter, but yeah, it's, a, it's the most fantastic yeah. book. And I've got to say, Al, what I've heard of, you, of your readings, you do it damn well. You're doing it oh, justice. Thanks very, thanks very much, James. That's oh, well, very, yeah. very, that's what very a sweet for. of you. Um, <laughs> and of course, um, uh, Z- who was Zeno? Um, this, is a, this, is a, this is a good question. Uh, um, he was called uh, Gerald Lamarck, and uh, he was uh, a lifelong um, uh, criminal. Basically, con man and ended up in Wormwood Scrubs for murdering his wife's lover in a hotel in Swansea and was taught to write by George Blake, the traitor, who then escaped from Wormwood Scrubs or jumping over the wall and landing in a lorry with a mattress. Um, uh, and uh, uh, um, Oh, my, that's my front door. I've obviously, I'm obviously out of time. That's my doorbell. <laughs> <laughs> well, it really is time to go. Anyway, it's time to go. Thanks, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for watching. If you are watching, um, it's been our absolute pleasure. We have yep. ways of making you talk. Auf Wiedersehen. Cheerio.